of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe for eight years now, speaking truth to those with no voice, speaking truth for those with no voice, let me get that straight, speaking truth to power, sharing the news of the cognitive minority as we begin to manifest a new normal for the quality of life for the 99%. Yes, it's here. We talk about sex, power, politics, and religion, all the things nice girls were once told not to bother their pretty little heads with. But you know what? We know better now. We want a seat at the table because without us, without ideals of the sacred feminine, humanity will continue to spiral down into the pit that patriarchy has created for us. And we welcome our evolved, like-minded brothers who are also the cognitive minority, sharing their wisdom here as well. And we'll shout these new ideals out from the rafters. We'll unravel the knot of the patriarchy. We'll shed light on every agenda they'd rather we not talk about because it's transparency, not secrets, that will lead us to our liberation and empowerment. Yes, indeed, we'll not stop until we change the world. And thank you for joining me each week. That cut uh, opening tonight's show was just a little sliver of uh, one of my new artist's uh, pieces uh, that you know she contributes to the show. The group is called Emma's Revolution, and that cut was, as you might have guessed, Peace, Salom, Shalom. And as we will it, so shall it be. Tonight, uh, we have two more voices you will no doubt want to hear. First up is Laura Perry discussing Ariadne's thread, awakening the wonders of the ancient Minoans in our modern lives. We know it was the Minoans who had an egalitarian society out there. No one can say it didn't exist because it did. Then uh, we are very lucky to have us uh, have with us tonight, uh, because he's visiting here in the United States right now, uh, Daniel Cohen. I grabbed him up to call in. Uh, he's a male feminist, former co-editor of Wooden Water, a British pagan magazine that was goddess-centered and feminist-influenced. He's going to chat about men and the goddess, gender bashing, the influence of myth, men's roles in the movement, then and now. And if time allows, we might actually get a little bit in about the work of his good friend, uh, Ash Fidel Long. Uh, but first, just a few announcements, and then we'll get uh, right over to Laura Perry. Uh, tonight, I mean tomorrow, tomorrow, uh, I have a very special show, but tonight is a special show too. Um, tomorrow I will be here with my husband, Roy, for the first time. He's going to help me bring you a holiday show called Goddesses of the Season and Legends and Lore of Christmas. You can find past shows on this similar theme if you go to uh, the December shows of years past. But this particular show coming up tomorrow is a bit different. Besides the fact that Roy and I are bringing it to you together as a tag team, and we've never done that before, we're also going to be covering material never quite talked about here uh, on Voices of the Sacred Feminine. We'll talk about the Germanic goddesses and how they were demonized uh, you know, uh, by Christianity. 
We'll talk about uh, Bafana, Perchta, Grilla, Snow Girl, the influence of the Romans on Christmas, the Egyptian influence on Christmas. I've also got some wonderful songs to play uh, for you from Jan Aldrich Clanton using familiar melodies but with goddess-centered lyrics. I think you'll enjoy that. And I'll close the show tomorrow with a seasonal reading from my book, Goddess Calling. It's an inspirational message for this time of year and uh, also a meditation. So don't miss tomorrow's show either. It's something a little bit different. And um, just so you know, I'm still looking for that audio file of a lioness growling. If anyone can find uh, a free one for me, please send along the MP3 or MP4. That way I can play our sacred roars. And um, I'll be guest ministering at the Goddess Temple of Orange County this coming Sunday and speaking on the topic of faith and trusting in the journey. And if you happen uh, to have my Goddess Calling book, you can actually read uh, that entry entitled Trusting in the Journey, and we can be in attunement. So I'm looking forward to seeing you if you're in the area, but um, if not, you know, you really might want to know about the temple. You might even want to plan a field trip because the Goddess Temple of Orange County, it's pretty incredible. I wrote about it in my very first book, uh, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, and um, and if you don't have the book, um, let me sort of bring you up to date Besides the fact that it is one of the few brick-and-mortar goddess temples in the entire world, on the planet, uh, it, it it's the most beautiful thing. It, it is so befitting goddess. I, I mean, if I, I'm sure every time goddess looks upon it, she smiles. I mean, in the main sanctuary, you have a larger-than-life-sized seated statue of the Egyptian uh, lion-headed goddess Sekhmet. She is on her four-foot-tall pyramid throne. Now imagine that. Can you get that picture in your head? Wow. Uh, that is sort of the backdrop for every ritual, every Sunday service, every event that happens at the temple. Also, uh, there's Oshun's Lounge. There's Kuan Yin's Meditation Room. There's the Isis Library. It's just a wonderful place. And... Um, uh, it's open to men and women. The first three Sundays of the month, they do services for women only, but the fourth Sunday are for families and, uh, you know, for all of your loved ones. And they also do uh, the Venus Hour every Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. You can go there uh, during the Venus Hour, and um, it's kind of like the best happy hour in Orange County. Uh, they have libations, snacks, music, movies, um, you know, just a nice place to mingle and meet new people, and it's all free. So if you're looking for like-minded folks and you're in the Orange County area, check that out on a, a Friday night or, uh, you know, check out the Sunday services or any of the many, many events they have there at the temple on an ongoing basis. And the website is uh, www.goddesstempleoc.org www.goddesstempleoc.org And perhaps you haven't heard yet about the Seminar at Sea coming up the week of Valentine's Day, which is 
I know we haven't even finished Christmas and New Year's yet, but you know, before you know it, Valentine's Day will be here. It is fast approaching. Uh, Roy and I are some of the workshop presenters on the cruise, the seminars, or uh, the love boat, as Roy likes to call it. Actually, uh, it's a princess cruise going to the Mexican Riviera for seven days for $999. And for that amount, uh, you get all the food, all the entertainment, all the workshops you can squeeze in for the week. Workshops are on improving your relationships of all kinds, from platonic relationships to work relationships to your love life. It's really a pretty good deal when you break it down. And uh, if you decide to go, you should really get in touch with me first before you register because I can offer you a secret code so you get a special added discount. So if you think you're interested, let me know. And um, we also have the Sacred Tour to Turkey coming up in May. We're taking no more than 20 women and men to Anatolia, as Turkey was once called, which means land of the nourishing mothers. Turkey is a real diamond in the rough um, you know, by that I mean it isn't overrun with tourists yet. You can go to so many of these sites, and oftentimes, you know, your group is the only one there, and it's it's just just wonderful. Um, you know, Turkey is a crossroads of of many cultures. It's a melting pot. Uh, it's also not yet on the euro, so your money spends well. The food's delicious. We'll be doing ritual at the sacred sites of Isis, Demeter, Aphrodite, Mary. Um, you know, I could go on and on, uh, but it is going to be a wonderful trip of both esoterica and exoterica, and I am co-leading it with the brilliant Dr. James Rietveld, whose new book is out only a few weeks ago, and it's titled Artemis of the Ephesians, Her Mystery, Magic, and Sacred Landscapes. You know, honestly... Um, I don't mean to uh, you know to sound egotistical about this, but I'm just saying the truth. I think there's probably no better a pair to travel to Turkey with than us if this is the kind of stuff you're into. Uh, besides visiting sacred sites of goddess for 16 days, doing ritual in her sacred sites, you'll be able to get a Turkish bath. Uh, you'll be able to see the whirling dervishes. And if you're interested, you can take an extension to Şatıl Hayuk or Gobeki Tepki. So if you're interested or have questions, please let me know sooner than later. All right. With all of that out of the way, um, I want to get uh, right to our first guest tonight, Laura Perry, discussing the wonders of the ancient Minoans in uh, modern culture. Let me introduce her to you first uh, by way of her bio, and then uh, we will start our chat. Laura is a pagan artist and writer. Uh, who aims to make ancient spiritual traditions relevant and powerful for modern women and men. She's been fascinated by the Minoan Society of Ancient Crete since her high school art history teacher introduced her to the colorful artwork of this fascinating ancient culture and has even tried her hand at translating the ancient Cretan script, Linear A. And no, she didn't do any better than anyone else. <laughs> well, Laura, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. Well, you know, as, as I was reading that, I was it made me think about, uh, gee, it wasn't that long ago, I, probably, you know, a month or so ago, on all over Facebook, people were talking about the Phaistos disc. Did you happen to see that? I did, I did. There's a, 
about once a year, someone is pretty sure they've translated it, and uh, I'm I'm waiting for the for the miracle when uh, Goddess one day gives someone the light bulb, and we really do know exactly what it says. <laughs> well, I know everybody I know was really excited about that because uh, I think one of the few words they could decipher uh, was goddess or mother or something like yes. that. Do you, do you recall Ma- what it Matre. was? Yeah, it's Matre. Yeah. Um, the, um, <clears throat> the, the writing on there is, um, it was made by some kind of uh, stamp in the wet clay and so um, I've always assumed that that wasn't the only one, that we just haven't found others. Because why would you carve enough stamps to make that entire disc, you know, stamping each emblem in one at a time and then throw them away? Right, right. Well, I, yeah, I mean, you would think, well, well, you know what I thought when I saw it? And, and you tell me if I'm anywhere near close, because I'll be honest with you, I perused the article really quick. It, it came across at a time when I was just, you know, up to my eyes in alligators, and I didn't get to read the whole thing. So, you know, I just mm-hmm. sort of got the bare bones. But I got the sense that maybe this was some sort of uh, a sacred object that was used in ritual because the way the um, the writing was written in a circular fashion, you sort of right. had to keep turning the disc to be able to read it. And I wondered if in the turning of the disc, that was sort of, you know, raising energy, so to speak. Um, I don't know. I just wondered, did did you give any of that? I mean, what what were your theories? Um, I have always thought that it's a calendar, and not just any calendar, but a sacred calendar. Um, The Minoans actually had quite an extensive uh, astronomical knowledge. Um, We don't think of them in those terms because they didn't build anything that looks like Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but they actually they calculated eclipses. They followed the um, the solar rising and setting, not just of Venus, but also of Spica and of Sirius um, and of several constellations. I mean, they were they were really um, quite sophisticated. And the thing that I find most interesting, the spiral, is one of their sacred symbols. And the uh, the glyph symbols on the Phaistos disc are in a spiral. And the spiral is the way the Minoans visualize the sun's path over the course of the year. Because they see they saw the earth as hanging there in the heavens and the sun as going over it during the day and beneath it during the night in a big circle. Mm -hmm. Only it's it's actually a spiral because in uh, at the winter solstice where we are now. Um, in the northern hemisphere, the sun rises as far south as it does all year long. Right. And each each morning from now until the summer solstice, it will rise a little bit farther north. So if you think about the sun going over the earth and then underneath, and the next morning it's going to rise in a slightly different place, and it's going to make that circular orbit again, and then the next morning it will rise in a slightly different place. So it's really... From from that world view, it's inscribing a giant spiral around the Earth. From I can one see that. To, from one solstice to the next and back. 
Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I can actually see that. Um, well, you know, as we were saying before, um, you know, the show started, we talked briefly, and uh, I'm I'm really interested in you making the Minoan, you know, religion, you know, you and your group making it relevant again. Um, and I can relate to the importance of that because when I first got into goddess spirituality, the people I worked were doing that with Isis rituals, you know, and one of our main rituals was the Isis Navigatum, uh, which was a ritual they had every March, and uh, it was, you know, it blessed the sailing season. And um, what we did was, you know, we tried to follow the ancient ritual as closely as possible uh, within reason. And one of the things that they used to do in the ancient times was they would fill a boat laden with offerings to Isis and launch it out uh, into the water. Now, I always wondered who went and claimed that ship later after <laughs> after the ritual was over. I'm sure they didn't just let it, you know, float off into oblivion. But what we did to sort of recreate that step was part of the ritual was we everybody who attended got a colored ice boat and we did the we did the ritual on the beach and part of the ritual was you would breathe your prayer or your petition to Isis into the boat before you launched it on the waves and we did that for about a decade and it became really popular oh, wow. and um yeah and I'm thinking you know but but you see and now, I may be totally wrong about this. I mean, it, the, us doing the Egyptian stuff, we had a lot of information to draw on. Um, did you have as much material, you know, um, you know, material culture and written stuff to actually, you know, recreate what the Minoans were actually doing? Um, no, not even close, I'm afraid. Um, this has been really... Um, a sort of combination spiritual quest and detective kind of thing. Because, um, you know, Linear A is the uh, the language, the, uh, the script in which the ancient Minoans actually wrote their own language. It has not been deciphered. No one even knows what it's related to. You know, for a solid century now, people have been throwing every possible idea at it and no one has succeeded. Um, so what we have essentially is secondhand sources. It's roughly like um, it's roughly like getting your information about, say, ancient Middle Eastern paganism from the stuff people wrote in the Bible. Okay, well, so or, or think too. I mean, again, going back to Egypt, we know about Cleopatra because not from what Cleopatra wrote about herself. We know about Cleopatra from what her enemies, the Romans, wrote about her. Right, right. You know. Um, but you know, my good friend that I mentioned earlier in the show, Dr. James Reedfeld, I went to one of his talks because he's a, a religion scholar and an archaeologist and all of that good stuff. Um, he was. You know, I'm going to have to ask him. It must be from a third-party source, too. But he was explaining how we know that they were really an egalitarian society, that, you know, we have records where women, for instance, were uh, were traders and owned their own businesses and things like that. So, oh, um, right, right, yes. I, I wonder, you know, maybe he, maybe they got something like that from the people they traded with or something. Um, oh, you mean the records? Now, the, we we have translated Linear B, which okay. is um, 
it looks, I know that whoever came up with the names for these scripts had absolutely no imagination, right? Linear A and Linear B. Um, linear B is uh, was translated in the 1950s, and it turns out to be a very early form of Greek with a whole bunch of native Cretan words kind of wedged in there. So um, the general consensus is that the Greeks who were illiterate um, came in contact with Minoan culture, and um, either the Minoans taught them how to write or Minoan scribes um, did the writing for them in their language. Um, so would the Linear B have been a later version of Linear A? Um, well, the two scripts are very closely related. The okay. languages aren't. The languages are not. Um, we know that Linear B... Um, is, was used to write Mycenaean Greek, very early Greek, that has a lot of borrowed Minoan words in it. Um, and that's where we get a lot of this information from. That's where we know, um, that's where we know the names. Like That's how we know that um, there was a goddess named Posidaia, who is essentially Grandmother Ocean, and that's the name that Poseidon eventually becomes. Ah, um, I had and, not heard that, Laura. Yeah, and and so um, Dionysus is first referenced in Linear B. Um, any number of of deities like that, Demeter even. Um, okay. And so, and so essentially, this is this is the Mycenaean Greeks, heavily influenced by Minoan culture. So it was the sort of Creole culture, a mixture. And uh, and I mean, and, and and didn't the uh, Mycenaeans end up conquering? Crete after the big devastation from uh, the volcanic eruption in Santorini. Am I remembering that all right? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think they originally had just a trading relationship, and then um, of course the the Minoans were not militaristic at all, and the Mycenaeans were, and I think the the Greeks essentially saw an opportunity. Uh, at a point when Minoan society was very weak from a whole series of natural disasters. Right. Um, and so it was probably a combination of political intrigue and a little, maybe a little mercenary action in there. Um, sure. And, uh, and so, yeah, eventually they did pretty much take over and Minoan culture um, as its own unique thing kind of uh, disappeared, became absorbed into the Mycenaean culture. But um, we we do have an awful lot of information, especially from uh, from the the earlier Linear B tablets. That um, you know they tell us things like what the priests and priestesses were called and how the land that belonged to the temples was divided up among the different ones and what kinds of uh, items were given uh, to the temples as uh, as offerings, that kind of thing, and and god and goddess names. So, well, let me ask you, let's sort of start at the beginning and and look at any point during this. If I have it wrong, feel free to correct me because I I, I don't want to misunderstand and I don't want listeners to misunderstand. Um, who were the Minoans? Um, were they by any chance who uh, some of the you know other folks in that region called the Sea People, or do we know who the Sea People were? Um, okay, the, the Minoans, um, the the island of Crete, there's evidence that there were people actually on the island as early as like 100,000 years ago. 
Okay. Um, so people had been coming to the island for millennia. Um, around five or 6,000 BCE, uh, there's finally some permanent settlement there. We honestly don't know where those people came from. Our best guess, given the way they depicted themselves in their art, is that they are from some portion of the Near East because they depicted themselves as as consistently tan and with uh, black, black hair. Okay. But... But beyond that, we really don't know where they came from. Um, and then uh, the Sea Peoples, um, that designation comes in around the year 1200 BCE, which is actually after the fall of Minoan situ- uh, civilization. Okay. And and it's a, um, it's a term that the Egyptians and some of the other people around the Mediterranean gave to, um, to large clusters of, um, of raiders and refugees who were moving around and uh, sometimes uh, sometimes attacking areas and sometimes just moving through looking for a place to live. Um, we so it could have been almost Minoan, any. Yeah, it could have we, been we almost any group of people then. Right. Um, from the descriptions that that we have, it sounds like it was a mixture. Um, any number of different groups of people who were displaced by the eruption of Santorini and the the subsequent, you know, tidal wave and the ash fallout, which I'm sure devastated agricultural areas. Um, so, yeah, that, but yes, the, the Minoans probably were among the sea people, yeah. So you're, you're, you and your group that are uh, recreating, you know, Minoan spirituality, um, were you drawn to it because of, uh, well, I mean, it's it's beautiful. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've had a chance to go to Crete and see the wonderful things in the museum, but I mean, we can all see the, you know, the glorious wall paintings and I mean, they seem like they were a thriving, sophisticated people. Was I mean, was it that that drew you to them or maybe because, you know, we know they were more sophisticated and egalitarian and, you know, we they weren't the, you know, barbarians of patriarchy or what what drew you to them? Well, um, like you mentioned, the, my first uh, conscious exposure to uh, to Crete was that art history class, and um, I flipped a page in my book and saw one of the frescoes and was just instantly covered with goosebumps. There was something in that art that spoke to me across, you know, 4,000 years, Um and when I started learning about Crete, I think what did attract me was um, was the not just the feeling of uh, egalitarianism between men and women, but also the feeling of respect toward all of nature. Uh, if you look at the, the Minoan artwork, you see the lilies and the birds and the monkeys and, you know, the dolphins. It's not It's not just oh, great, here's God is along with God, it's more like here is all of creation and it is all sacred and it is all very much alive. Mm, so that, that's, that's delicious. What really, yeah, <laughs> that, that's what really drew me in. So your group is called uh, Ariadne's Tribe. Um, and... Uh, now you you know now you didn't name it Minos's tribe. You know most people maybe are more familiar with uh, King Minos, but you chose not to do that. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I I call the uh, the ancient Cretans Minoans because that's the term everyone's familiar with. Um, and if I say Cretans, sometimes they uh, misunderstand it as Cretan, which is someone who's not terribly intelligent. Um, <laughs> but the Minoans, that's a name that Sir Arthur Evans gave to the people of ancient Crete. Uh, he was the Victorian-era archaeologist who first excavated Knossos. And he he showed all of the wonders of ancient Crete to the world, but you have to remember he was also a white British Victorian-era gentleman. Mm-hmm. So he had a very specific worldview, and his worldview involved a hierarchy with God at the very top and white men right underneath. Mm-hmm. And And so... His idea was, well, this was the civilization of King Minos of the uh, the Theseus and the Labyrinth myth from classical Greek mythology, um, which is a, a really badly twisted version of the Minoan uh, mythology. And so, um, you know, Evans said, well, you know, this was a kingdom. It, it was so glorious it can't possibly have been anything else. And so he called the people the Minoans because they were the people of King Minos in his mind. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want the focus to be on uh, that kind of vibe. Right. See what I mean? Right. Um, right. I do. To, well, to I, I mean, the, I remember when we know, went there to visit. Crete. I remember that whole controversy with him, um, and and I think he got in a lot of trouble too because he sort of rebuilt some of the monuments and things, and um, you know he wasn't the a trained archaeologist. Yeah. yeah, the way he thought they should look. He wasn't a trained archaeologist, but um, do you know how he managed to excavate that stuff? No, why don't he you put, tell us? He couldn't get. I just recently discovered this. I was digging through some. Um, some academic information about this. He couldn't get permission to excavate, so he did a few dealings and bought Knossos. Ah. And then it was his to do with as he pleased, and he did. Oh, so it was his amusement park, <laughs> in a yes, sense. Yes, essentially. It was his, his personal playground. Wow. And, well, so, is there yeah. any way for us to know what he you know, created out of whole cloth or what he discovered and sort of left intact the way it was for us to sort of see it in situ? Um, there, if you're if you're actually there, from what I understand, because sadly I have yet to go to Crete, um, you can actually see what has been reconstructed and what hasn't. Um, and I've, I've looked at some close-up photographs of um, some of the finds and you can see where he has um he or his crew put uh figurines back together and plastered in the broken spots and things like that mm-hmm. um, I don't think he really totally made anything up. He took what was there and put it back together the way he thought it ought to go. Do we know um, what the horns of consecration were really all about? Well, I can tell you what I think no one can. Okay, here's the thing. Since none of this was written down um, in any language that we can currently uh, currently read, we we have to interpret it as best we can. Um, I'm I am 
partial personally to allowing groups of people to get together and um, use what's called personal gnosis. Uh, in other words, if if you're meditating on something and it comes into your mind that it means this, then you go and share it with other people and they share what what they feel about it. And if large numbers of you are coinciding on the same thought, then you're probably getting something that's got a kernel of truth in it. Right. Um, right. This is called this is called massively corroborated gnosis. Um, a number of the pagan reconstructionist groups, including the uh, the Hellenic ones and the Norse ones, have used it um, quite effectively. Okay. And so that's kind of that's that's kind of what we're aiming for with this. Um, my well, line of and, thought, and look, the, you know. and the reality is, Laura. I mean, for somebody that would say, "Oh, oh well, you know, you're just making it all up. It, it, it it's, um, it, it's not of any value." That's not really true, I don't think, because you know, if we're, it's not like you're denying what we know. You're trying to recreate something, reconstruct it as best you can with the slivers of information you have. And if you're really out with the best of intentions to revere those gods and goddesses and pay homage to a beautiful culture, what's the harm in that? You know, especially if it um, improves your quality of life, you know, makes people, you know, makes you better people, you know, all of the sort of things that spirituality does for us. Right. Well, who who's to say that any any portion of any religion that anyone is practicing, you know, is the absolute right or wrong way to do it. So true. It, I it, mean, look at all it, the controversy it, it, with Mary Magdalene and Jesus and right. all of it, you know. Yeah. I, I tend to think that if it doesn't dramatically contradict something that everyone agrees is a fact, and that if it works in a spiritual sense to to help people move on to a higher plane, help them be better people, uh, help them make the world a better place, then it's worthwhile uh, working with that mindset and going forward with it. And, you know, and I wouldn't doubt for a minute the way you were so drawn to that place and the way it makes you feel that you probably have past lives there, you know. And who's um, to say, yeah. you know, there's not some... Uh, I don't know, I call it DNA memory or something, you know, who's to say that the folks that you're working with aren't tapping into something like that? Because, I mean, we have people right. who channel pe- channel things and channel people and channel ideas. And, um, I mean, how is that any different than somebody in the Bible who gets an epiphany? You know, I mean, right, it's the same thing. Right. <laughs> well, honestly, I, I really think we need to kind of move past the Enlightenment era, 18th century mechanistic view of the world that says that it only exists if we can measure it with a scientific instrument, mm-hmm, you know, and, mm-hmm. and move into something that's a little more fluid and organic. And I think uh, moving into a, a worldview that is a little more accepting of the less uh, concrete yeah. Part of the world is actually more in keeping with these ancient traditions that we're working with because that's the way those people viewed the world. Well, and that's, I mean, and I think you're saying in a way you're tapping into your intuition. And, I mean, and isn't right. that, you know, when you're tapping into your divine inspiration, and, I mean, and that's the sacred feminine. That's true. Well, and so, also, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go, you go. 
Okay, well, I, the whole point of, of doing this is to create a spiritual uh, path that works for us in the modern world. Mm-hmm. And so we're not we're not aiming specifically to recreate exactly the way somebody did something in 1750 BCE. Right. What we're trying right. what we're trying to do is find find the core of the, of the energy and the the values of this civilization, this wonderful, the egalitarian, respectful, inclusive society, and bring that into a spiritual path that works for modern pagans. Well, I think that's great. And, you know, I ran into this kind of stuff myself when we were recreating the Isis rituals where I would run into a purist. I'll just call him a purist. Uh, and they would say stuff to me like, you know, how do you know the stuff that you're doing is useful? Um, you have no idea, you know, not in, uh, you know, it, with enough detail, you know, what the ancient people thought, what the ancient gods were really like. And I mean, and I, and you know, and I, in a way, thought that was ridiculous because people evolve over time, and if we really do believe that these are gods and goddesses, wouldn't they be able to? evolve with us, you know, and follow us in our evolution. And just because, you know, and and I would think that just as they could relate to ancient peoples, they could relate to contemporary people. Otherwise, why would they be God? (laughs) You know? Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, if you're saying that that these, these deities are incapable of relating to modern people, what is that saying about what you think about the deities? I know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because, you know, people would make the case, well, if you can't do it exactly right, you know, well, you might not be able to find attunement with the deity. And I said, look, I'm sorry, I have more faith in deity than you. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, so, I'm, I'm not really sure I would want to hang out with a deity that says, I'm sorry, you mispronounced that word in line three, so I'm not talking to you. Yeah, or or you didn't get that ritual exactly right, you know. Yeah. Um so listen, the throne room, um, I mean, the throne, throne room is a room that really comes to mind for me. Um, and, I mean, I know they call it the throne room, but do you know if that was something that was uh, left untouched or recreated? Um, the uh, the uh, throne itself and the built-in benches and the, um, I most people call it the uh, sunken chamber, it's, it's uh, a... Evans called them lustral basins. They're these um, depressions in the floor. It's like three or four steps down and this small area like the size of a hot tub, and so he thought people took baths in there. Um, those, um, those are original. The frescoes on the wall are um, some reasonable uh, recreations based on tiny little fragments of colored plaster that they found on the floor. Um, The one really sad thing about the way frescoes work, uh, they're made by putting plaster on a wall and then painting on it with essentially tempera paint while the plaster is still wet. So the paint soaks into the plaster and becomes one with it, and so when the plaster dries, you have this really wonderful, deep, rich, vibrant color the plaster is not a terribly uh, long-term kind of substance. Right. And, and so over the centuries, as the the walls 
uh, shifted and the occasional earthquake hit the island, all of these wonderful frescoes cracked and fell in chunks all over the floors. So they were literally knee-deep in pieces of painted plaster when they excavated. Right. So all of, all of the frescoes are actually little jigsaw puzzle pieces that they picked up off the floor and put back together. Wow. Um, yeah. So, so so let me ask you, um, if you can't, um, all right, so you're trying to construct a religion when you can't read the culture's language. So how are you managing to do that? I mean, what, well, there, you know, give us some examples. Okay, well, some of the some of the stuff we are doing essentially involves back engineering the Greek legend. Okay, because the the Greeks did to the Minoan uh, mythology what pretty much any culture does over has done over the course of history to any culture that it conquered, mm-hmm. which is, you know, to take the mythology of the conquered culture and essentially display the pro- the process of the conquering by having the victorious gods take over from the other gods. Okay. So so um Ariadne for instance was originally a goddess. Now what is she in the Greek legend of Theseus and the Minotaur that you know every school kid reads? She's a maiden. She might be King Minos's daughter which makes her a princess, but she's just a girl essentially with a ball of string. Right. 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 But she is actually a very a very important, um, very powerful goddess um, who's, you know, her ball of thread leads you to the, the depths of your very soul. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, so a, a good portion of it is sort of back engineering the, the Greek myths and, and uh, removing the smear campaign, as it were. Gotcha, gotcha. I understand um, that. Yeah, um, yeah. Because um, we have to do that. I mean, I just had Charlene Spretnak, uh on the show a month or two ago when we had Feminist Fairy Tale Months, and you know, we were talking about the pre-patriarchal myths. You know, what did the myths look like before patriarchy distorted them? You know, and normalized things like rape. Um, right. So, so now we think the Minoans were maybe a matrilineal or egalitarian society, and you have men in your group. Um, how does that all work together? I mean, where where is their place? Are they equal to women? Or are they, you know, um, uh, you know, or, or women, you know, sort of leading the groups? How, how are how are you reconciling all of that? Um, well, at the moment, it's kind of a collective effort. Um, I actually started the group, so officially I'm the leader, but um, I feel like it's a sort of um, uh, fairly level collective. Um, One of the interesting things about Minoan society is that they didn't have a uh, hierarchical pantheon like you get in, say, Greek, classical Greek mythology. There There wasn't a king, you know a father god sort of at the head ruling everyone else. Um, well, well, we see a lot of priestesses, so, though. You know, there were the there were the bare-breasted women. There were the right. all the priestesses that you see um, in the art in um, the museum. You have the snake goddess. You have her sisters. Um, you know, I honestly don't remember seeing any male figures besides the bull jumpers and like the feather prince. 
but my memory could be foggy. It's been a long time since I've been there. Well, your memory is pretty accurate, but see, this is the interesting thing. When that whole area was first excavated, that was uh, the very end of the 19th century, the first couple decades of the 20th century, and it was all men, right, male archaeologists, digging all this stuff up. There are hundreds of uh, small carvings, seal stones, small votive figurines with male, fully clothed or mostly clothed male figures on them. Those are relegated to the back pages of academic papers, storage boxes in museums, and what gets put up front, what was chosen to be put up front by the early 20th century and Victorian era male archaeologists was the bare-breasted women. Ah, titillation. <laughs> yes, literally, yes. Right, so right. We, we have a very skewed image of, of uh, what the society was like uh, I even, someone pointed out to me the other day, Nanu Marinatos is, uh, is a, a fabulous archaeologist, and she's written several books about the Minoans. Um, and she, she comes at it from an academic perspective. But what's really funny is that in her classic book um, from the 90s, it's titled Minoan Religion, Ritual, Image, and Symbol, um, she specifically states, oh, yeah, almost all of the artwork from ancient Crete is of women." But then I actually looked in the book and counted up. She's got hundreds of illustrations and counted them up, and about half of them are images of men. Hmm. So, you know, we we have it in our heads that it's this way, but if you actually look at what's in front of you in black and white, the, the amount of representation of male versus female is pretty even. So they they may have had um, well they well have you found male gods there that uh, you know that you know that would sort of like stand alongside uh, the snake goddess or her sisters or Ariadne or oh yes yes um, like I, I mentioned before um, Dionysus is actually uh, mentioned in the Linear B tablet um, he is the uh, I guess the term that most people use these days is the dying and reborn God. I'm not sure that's how the Minoans saw him. But he is the baby, the sacred baby who was born on solstice every year on Crete. Wow. I Uh, had no idea Dionysus was on Crete. He is the son of the great earth mother goddess Rhea, who is her, she is actually the island of Crete itself. Oh, okay. Um, and even even the Greek chroniclers always said, even after Rhea became part of the uh, the Greek pantheon, the Greek chroniclers always said she was from Crete. So was Crete, so should we look at Crete then? I guess for some reason in my mind, I mean, I know Crete is part of Greece now, but in some for some reason I saw them separate from Greece with different gods. I guess that's why I'm a little bit, I'm surprised that you're saying Rhea and you're saying Dionysus because I, I almost expected them to come from a different source. You, you know what I mean? That they would have had their, their own creatrix goddess and you know that they it it but yet it feels like it's in parallel with the greek mainland well i think what happened actually and i'm 
I'm sure there are some Hellenists out there who will get a little miffed at me for saying this. Um, I think to a very great extent, the Greeks simply borrowed um, the Minoan pantheon, not wholesale, but large chunks of it. Um, I think they also borrowed a a good bit of the pantheons from Anatolia as well. Ah. Um, So Rhea Rhea and Dionysus are originally Greece. Crete, Crete yes. informs Greece where, rather than the mainland informing Crete. It's the other way around. Yes, yes the Minoan gotcha. civilization is a couple thousand years older than Greece. Okay, okay. So, all right, so yeah. I'm curious. Uh, all right, so the snake goddess and her sister. It always bothered me that we just called her the snake goddess. Do we have any idea what their names are? Um, there are some possibilities. Um, it's it's very difficult to um, to tease out things like that because all we have is the stuff that uh, that someone wrote later on in a different language. Um, yeah. Now, now let me let me give you my impression of the snake goddess. First of all, most people are familiar with the figurine um, uh, with the the woman holding a snake in each hand with her arms outstretched and a cat um, on her head. Yeah, I hate that cat. Evans found it on the floor and glued it to her head. Uh, um, yeah, it does seem kind of odd, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> there is no evidence anywhere else in any part of Minoan art of anyone having a cat on their head, so I think he <laughs> may have made a little boo-boo there. But anyway, um, it was common in the ancient world for goddesses to be depicted in a human form and they're alongside their consort who was in animal form. So I believe that the snakes that the goddesses are holding or have entwined around them are the underworld serpent consort of the goddess. Hmm. And okay. this would this would be essentially a face of Dionysus, which means that that goddess is Ariadne. Interesting. Okay, okay. And um, so and this what is it, just my interpretation, but no, and that's you know fair enough. Look, I mean, you know, um, what is it that archaeologists do? You know, they, you know, take all the the facts around them and come to a conclusion. You know, um, so what what about the sisters of the snake goddess? I mean, at least that's how they refer to them. I think in the museum, um, you know, the ones with those full flounced skirts. Uh, and and the I, I think the bare breasts and one of them kind of has a square shaped hat on her head I think um, any sense about who they are I, I mean are they goddesses priestesses do we know Okay well um, one of the interesting things about Minoan uh, religion as compared to maybe the Egyptians is that the Minoans always depicted goddesses in human form. And we're pretty sure that what they did in terms of ritual was actually have the priestesses um, uh, undergo trance possession. In other words, the goddess would possess the priestess during ritual, and she would effectively be the goddess incarnate for the duration of the ritual. Um, They even, uh, actually there's evidence that after the ritual, they would take the priestesses' clothes and hang them up on a special display where they were worshipped as having, or revered at least, as having touched the living goddess. Hmm. Um, And so because this is how the people of Crete experienced their deities, 
then if we're really, really honest about it and not trying to, you know, finish our PhD thesis and get a pat on the back from the academic world, if we're really honest about it, if there is a woman standing in any kind of ritual posture, we cannot tell whether she is meant to be a priestess or a goddess or both. Right, right, because she could just be embodying the goddess. Right. Because I'm, I know in Egyptian religion, if uh, a priestess wore that that round manat collar and had a right. sistrum, they believed that she was embodying the goddess when she when she had those two pieces of clothes, in, you know, on. Right. You right. Know. So it's almost kind of the same thing, you know. Right. And I, I think it, the um, the ancients really didn't. Uh, didn't even question the possibility of deity, you know, coming in and possessing a human being. To them, that was an expected and normal part of ritual. Right, right, right. Well, you know, you must be having an awful lot of fun doing this, and and I mean that in the most sincere way. I mean, this is really exciting. It is, and it's really, it's joy to me, honestly. Um, You know, I've I've, uh, experienced many different aspects of pagan practice uh, over the past uh, couple decades. And this is the one that I keep circling back to or spiraling back to, uh, I guess. And it's the one that um, that drives me forward the most strongly because I think it has such great potential um, to touch people and to provide the world with some tools for showing uh, each and every one of us how we can be compassionate and and uh, practice egalitarianism in our lives and, um, you know, take, take those uh, values that, honestly, to many people make the ancient Minoans uh, seem kind of exotic and bring those, bring those values forward and that worldview forward uh, because I think it's something we really are in need of. Right now. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, bring the sacredness back to the earth. Bring uh, partnership to the genders. I mean, if we just did that, you know, um, how how far would that take us to making, uh, you know, to making a better world? Um, oh heavens, yes. So, Laura, um, you know, in your bio, you you don't really say anything about a book. And I know we started talking about you coming on the show months and months ago, and it was during a time I was just overwhelmed. Or Have you written a book about this, or are you going to? Uh, I have, actually, um, and it is called Ariadne's Thread. Um, oh, so the that, show that, topic. That, the show topic yes. is the book. Yeah. Well, it's it's the book title, but to me, Ariadne's thread is kind of what ties my life together at this point, you know, in a symbolic kind of way. I see. Um, I see. Um, so, so now the book Ariadne's thread is it is the subtitle of our show topic also the subtitle of the book Awakening the Wonders is. of the. Okay. Okay. Um, and so the book is, is has it, uh, you know, is it published already? Is it available to be purchased? It is. Um, the easiest way to find out about it is to have a look on my website. Um, or you can Google it, uh, Amazon and all those people carry it. Um, so. So, so tell us your website, Laura. Uh, it is my name, Laura Perry, and the word author, as in someone who writes books, 
com. So it's lauraperryauthor.com. And now if uh, one of my listeners goes to your book, have you um, sort of laid out for them how they can actually, um, you know, take this spirituality and run with it, so to speak? I mean, um, do you have rituals in there or, you know, something that might suggest to them how they could put together their own? Um, What will they find uh, in the content of the book? Um, Well, the book is divided into three parts. Uh, The first part is uh, what we know pretty firmly about the ancient Minoans, their their daily life and their spirituality. The second part is a year's worth of seasonal rituals, um, focusing on and connecting with the Minoan deities. And then the third part is a lifetime's worth of rites of passage, uh, all the way from birth to a memorial rite uh, and an ancestor ritual. Um, so oh, yes, wonderful. definitely, you know, ways to ways to bring it alive um, by yourself or with a group, however you want to do it. Wonderful. Well, Laura, this is this really has been a, a, a exciting. I mean, I do think, like you, that you know, Minoan Creed, at least what we think we know about it, uh, it really does offer some, you know better values, uh, you know, for our society, for our cultures, for uh, for humanity. And I'm so glad you did this because I don't think, um, with the exception of the book that you mentioned, the woman who. Uh, the scholar that that you mentioned a a bit ago, I don't think there's been an awful lot done like you've done for Minoan Crete. Has there? I mean, you're you're pretty alone, I think, doing this, aren't you? I I really am. I really am. And, um, I mean, Carol Chris does a certain amount of, of really great stuff in terms of the pilgrimages, but there isn't a whole lot for just, um, your average pagan who wants to connect with these deities and and maybe kind of sync with the vibe of the the society, the the Minoan uh, mythology and worldview. So, well, you know, I hope you are able to get there soon one day. Um, I mean, I just I know what it meant for me to be able. I was a part time travel agent way back when, uh, and I was ah. able to actually go to some of these places. Can you believe I used to be able to go to Paris for like round trip for three hundred dollars? I mean, those oh, wow. those, those days are dead and gone. I mean, it, it's like so long ago. It's practically another lifetime. But I remember what it was like to stand in these sacred sites and for you yeah. having such a pull. For me, it was Egypt. You know, I mean, I can remember sailing away from Philae, which, you know, Isis's temple, and, you know, it was it was devastating. You know, I, I really felt like I had some past connection there, too. And sometime in your life, you have to make sure you, you make it to Crete. I mean, you owe it to yourself. I know, um, I will. <laughs> Uh, well, I, and I hope I hope after you come back, you'll you'll get in touch with me and and tell me how it all was for you too. And oh, of and thank and thank you for doing this book. You know, I mean, I think it's long overdue. And I mean, I know academia has stuff out there, but you know, we need stuff besides just academia. I mean, I think we need the stuff for average people, like what you're talking about. You know, reconstructing. Uh, you know, taking what we know, reconstructing it, doing the best you can with that to make it relevant, uh, because really in the end it's the values that we're trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, perpetuate in the world. 
you know. Right. And, um, and 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 I think what you're doing is important, and you've you've you know you've picked a great civilization, I think, to um, you know to to bring forth, you know, because it's been in the shadows. Well, hopefully not for too much longer. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Well, Laura, thank you so much um, for being on the show. And I know tonight wasn't the best night for you, and it was a little bit difficult. So I appreciate, uh, you know, you you doing it in spite of the inconvenience. Um, I've enjoyed talking to you, and I really sincerely mean. I hope I hope that you'll keep in touch with me, and um, you know, let me know how this progresses because I, I'm sincerely interested in it. I, I think it's marvelous, and it's an adventure, and. Um, I just fully support you 100% in what you're doing, and I'd love to know how your group, you know, moves along with this. And, um, uh, you know, do you have a blog or anything, you know, that people can sort of follow, you know, for updates or anything? Um, well, the group itself is called Ariadne's Tribe, and it's on. we're on Facebook right now. We're a, a public group. People are welcome to come join us um, and join in the discussion. Okay. Um, and I also have, uh, I write the Minoan Path blog at Pagan Square. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, and so that the Minoan, I am the only Minoan on there. <laughs> Good for you. Well, you know, it's got to start somewhere. You're you're blazing the trail with your pink-handled machete is what I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Well, thank you, Laura. Thank you for being courageous and uh, having such vision, and uh, I just really think it's wonderful, and I so appreciate you being on the show tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Oh, you're you're welcome. I, I really enjoy talking to you. So, I, And I'm sure we'll talk somewhere down the road. Keep in touch. All right, great. Okay, okay bye-bye. Well, um, I I think you probably enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, and uh, we are about ready to cross the threshold into the second part of the show. And I want to tell um, uh, David that I see him there, and uh, we are going to get to him in, uh, in just a minute or two. Uh, but first, I think you will recognize this. Yep, that's the sign. That's the sign that uh, we're halfway through the show and uh, uh, we're about to move into the second half. And I have to pay tribute to Joe Carson because she helps me, uh, you know, keep paying for the airtime here uh, with her uh, commercial. So please bear with me. Uh, commercial for Dancing with Gaia. The psychic state is the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet, what's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected, they were together, that there wasn't a separation. That's what we are trying to return to, is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. That's the sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex.
Well, that was Serena Roney Dougal, Ph.D., uh, speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Dancing with Gaia explores the connections between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, the goddesses Gaia. It features uh, 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. And the DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book, and you know what? It is only 20 bucks. Uh, it's a deal. Uh, you can get your own copy at dancingwithgaia.com. Uh, and I just want to say thank you to Joe Carson for her continued uh, contributions to the show, uh, as I said, to uh, help me pay for airtime. And um, if you'd like to support my work and the show, you can do uh, one or more of several things. Go to my website, uh, karentate.com. You can make a donation of any amount using the button on the Goddess Store page way down at the bottom. Uh, you can order one of my books. Uh, from me is best if you're in the United States uh, or from a local bookseller uh, because we really do need to keep them in business. That's the next best thing. Uh, use Amazon, but only if you have to. Uh, and I think you've heard me talk about that before. So, uh, yeah, those are a couple of the ways you can uh, help support me and uh, help support the show if you like. And uh, here's a quote from my new book, uh, Goddess Calling, that came out uh, earlier in the year. But I'm not just talking about politics. I'm talking about stretching ourselves, challenging ourselves, trying to accomplish things we might feel or a bit beyond us. It's a journey of becoming and a growing we all must take, and we cannot be afraid of the journey. It's the journey that steals us. It's the trying, the praying, the stumbling, and picking yourself back up, the seeking, the very act of doing that staves off fear and fills us with hope. The destination doesn't necessarily hold the reward. The reward comes from that which has been gleaned from the journey. The destination is just where you take a deep breath, reflect, and relax after the journey has molded you. It's where we take a respite before beginning again to meet the next challenge or climb the next mountain. And that's a quote of mine from Goddess Calling. So next up tonight is uh, Daniel Cohen. I'm uh, so glad to have him with me tonight. I thank him for taking time for, uh, from his visit uh, here in the U.S. Uh, to be here on the show. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Daniel before we start our chat. And uh, by way of that, you'll have a sense of him and his incredible body of work. Uh, he was born in Manchester, England in 1934. He was a professor of math and his work life, but he's always had an interest in myth and story and an awareness of political and social issues. His political concerns, together with his childhood experiences in the Second World War, led him to support women's rights. He was a very active participant in the anti-sexist men's movement of the 70s. And searching for a spiritual outlook in midlife, he discovered paganism and the goddess movement. These provided a focus for him, and he was much influenced by Ash Fidel Long and Monica Hsu and other British and American women who were feminist or part of the goddess movement. For over 20 years, until it ceased publication at the end of 2003, he co-edited Wood and Water, a British pagan magazine that was goddess-centered and feminist-influenced. 
His interest in myth and folk tales, which originated in childhood, combined with his concern for feminist issues, led him to retell myths from the perspective of men's relationship to the goddess, bringing the hang on <laughs> uh, bringing the insights of feminist spirituality and the goddess movement to the recreation of traditional myths and folk tales, but with male heroes whose actions do not follow the stereotypical pattern. These stories are collected in his book, The Labyrinth of the Heart, and his website is com. So, Daniel, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Can you hear me okay? I sure can. I absolutely can. And you know what? It is so wonderful uh, to know another man, another ally of ours out there who has been uh, side by side uh, in the struggle for uh, for women's equality. Thank you for everything you've been doing in the world. Thank you. There are more uh, there are more men getting involved now than there used to be. I think. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, um, Daniel. You know what? You know what was it like in the early days compared to now? Um, you know what stands out for you the most when it comes to men and goddess or men and feminism? Well, very much in the past, we were separate from the women's movement. We'd, we have to be, but uh, many more nowadays feminist women are welcoming men in. And I think some of the young men are really good. Some wonderful work, the White Ribbon Campaign, that, that nasty thing that that, man, that man, man killed a number of women in, in Montreal. And there was a movement of, uh, of revulsion against uh, such violence against women and a number of men created the White Ribbon Campaign against that to indicate they're against violence. And this, uh, I know that the British White Ribbon Campaign, not not very many men perhaps, but it's the good men really doing lovely work. That's one of the things. In the early days, it was much more personal work. I think people, men were, uh, who were involved were interested in the politics, there wasn't enough of a background for it. Okay, okay. Um, and I just want to ask you to make sure you keep the phone really close to your mouth. Um, I don't right. know if as you're, you're talking, maybe you're animated, um, but every now and again we'll lose a word. So um, yes. I, I just just want to make sure we're hearing uh, hearing you as uh, you know hearing you as good I'll as we can. The, yeah, I'll put it on the speakerphone and see if that does any better. Okay, okay. Uh, sometimes it's worse, but we'll give it a try. <laughs> um, so so I think just sort of to recap what I think you said, Daniel, most of the men who were in the feminist movement of the past, um, they weren't out there publicly. Is, is that the point you were trying to make? They were more, you know, maybe working with individual women and things like that, or did I did I misunderstand you? There was public action, but I think you couldn't you couldn't say that the men were part of the feminist movement in those days. They were allies, and quite a lot of women didn't weren't sure they were real allies, which I think still sometimes happens. But they were working independently. 
there were men okay. working on schools talk, talking about violence against women and trying to change boys' attitudes, but they weren't working with women, anything like as much as is happening now. I, I see. So it was sort of like two separate. You were working for the same thing, but it wasn't like you were in the same groups you know, working yeah. side by side. I, I understand. Well, you know, and I, I you know, I'm going to say this, and it, it might make some people annoyed with me, but, you know, what the heck, you know. Um, I find that feminists today sometimes, and not just, you know, I, you know, not just feminists, but women in general, I, I mean, I have found sometimes are really hard on men. And, it, but I'm saying even the men that are trying to be our allies, and, you know, I'll get on Facebook, for instance, and I sort of get slammed from both ends. I get slammed from the women who think feminism is a bad thing because they don't know any better. And I get slammed from the real radical feminists who think that I'm too nice to men and I um, let, let men come on my radio show. And I think men, you know, some men have important things to say. And I get slammed by them because oftentimes I get the impression from them that they really wouldn't care if men dropped off the face of the earth, you know, and they, they sort of marginalize even the good men out there. And I guess I've just wondered, have you experienced that yourself? Have, as you have tried to help women, have women helped you help them, or have they hindered your helping them? Well, I've been lucky in knowing women who uh, uh, to have some help, to have some allies, and who are critical at the same time. That's the thing. I mean, men have to accept women's criticism, understand it as something important, but, well, oh, well, one thing I said, uh, the, men, the women who say men are no good, you're never going to be any good, it lets men off the hook, because if you're never going to be any good, why bother to change? What right. really is, is difficult and hard, and I've been challenged, is you're not much good. You could be a damn sight better. Why don't, you, why don't you try and be the best you're capable of? And if you get that from the women, oh, it's, it's hard to even to try to be the best you're capable of. True, true. And, you know, and I think what, um, and I don't know if you've experienced this all along, uh, but one of the things that frustrates me too is, for instance, you know, when we have, uh, male violence out in the world, our media seems to be afraid to name men as the perpetrators. You know, they'll say yeah. stuff like, well, what's wrong with our violent culture rather than why are men so violent? Why are they always um, starting these wars or abusing these women or whatever it is they're doing? Because it seems like most yeah. of the violence on the planet is initiated by men. Don't Would you agree? Oh, yes. And I think that uh, it's probably still true that when the violence is initiated or supported by women, it's it's women who are trying to fit into a man's world. Think of Margaret Thatcher. Oh, I was just thinking, I was just thinking her before the words left your mouth. Um, Yes, yes. And I mean, we have our Sarah Palin over here and Michelle Bachman and you know, all the Republican women who uh, just uh, prop up the patriarchy and the status quo, even if it if it means um, 
uh, voting for things that are against what's best for women. It's it's crazy, really, the women that are complicit in their own oppression. Yeah. Do you do you find do you find that things are any different now, Daniel? I mean, with the women complicit in their own oppression thing, do you think women have gotten smarter? Um, you know, or or do you think? I, I mean, I don't know. I know this is anecdotal. I mean, it's not like you've taken a poll, but you know, just your sense of it. Um, you know, how are things different now than they were, say, twenty years ago? Well, the thing that's been impressing me at the moment uh, is the number of young women who have been uh, involved. Uh, what's what's the surname? You know, the uh, Malala, the Pakistani woman who won the Nobel Peace Prize for the Taliban tried to kill her, and she was fighting back. Pussy Riot in the, uh, in Russia, and uh, various groups in. England, the UK, UK feminists, uh, who, young women who organise conferences, and there's some good women comics who make some good political points. I don't know what it's like in the states at the moment. Well, yeah, you know, it's it's a strange mix. You know, we we have young women who um, are shying away from feminism because you know they think well, feminists are just victims, and they think we just all hate men. And, of course, it isn't true, but, you know, that's the idea that they've, you know, that they've somehow gotten. Um, But we, you know, I I think we're making progress. But, you know, unfortunately, we've we've had a wave of Republicans come into office in the last, you know, uh, six years that have taken over all the state congresses and have set women back decades, you know, when it comes to abortion rights. And, you know, some states are, are trying to limit women's access to contraception. And it's just, it's, it, you know, it's unbelievable. Scary, yes. Yeah, it's scary. I, I mean, I do you... I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. I hope there will be a fight back by women. There seems to be quite a lot of women who are feminists, but who... Uh, don't realize it and can't stand the word uh, feminism. But you know, something uh, it said a long time ago, what was it? That uh, I don't exactly know what a feminist, uh, feminist is, but uh, I know that any time uh, I refuse to be treated as a, as a doormat, men call me a feminist. I think that was Rebecca West who said that. But something of that kind, any, any time standing up for themselves, is actually feminism. Yeah. Particularly that's doing it in a social way and standing up for oneself and for others. Yeah, I, I think the term, I mean, I wish we could come up with a different word because I think we uh, there are probably a lot of women who believe in the values, but they yeah. the, 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 the term has been poisoned. Yeah. So, so it, is it even that way over in the UK? Is the term feminism uh, has it been poisoned there as well? I think so. I'm hoping that that it's recovering, but I certainly think that's true. Okay. Well, before yeah. we move on to something else, is there anything um, else you wanted to share about 
you know, men and feminism or, you know, before we move on to the next part of our talk? Well, I think, as I said, I think the crucial thing is for men to acknowledge what they have done individually, what we have done, I include, I include myself, but also what men as a group have done. And not to say, gosh, we're guilty, but to say, yes, this has happened. In, in South Africa, after the end of apartheid, there was something called a Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, which wasn't about prosecuting people who've done uh, horrible things. It was about just saying, this has happened, we witness, we are aware of it. Let's be sure that it doesn't happen again. And this is what I think I want men to do. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's an incredible idea. Um, you know, I mean, here, in, and, you know, I don't know how far away we are from that, but I don't know if you've heard about how the NFL has um, come under so much scrutiny because of domestic violence, um, you know, committed by their players. And also uh, the military has come out of a lot, uh, you know, under a lot of scrutiny. So has college uh, campuses. Um, it seems like this idea of male violence against women is really in the news right now. And I hope uh, it, does, it doesn't just fizzle, you know, that something actually comes of it, like what you're saying, you know, reconciliation. Yeah, we get the same thing in, in England all almost the same thing, football players, college campuses, and the like. There's a whole lot, lot of issues at the moment. Yeah. Anyway, okay. so on to something else. Sure. Um, well, I wanted to um, ask you, I, I know your, uh, you know, myth is an important thing uh, to you, and uh, I wondered what you wanted to say about myth and its influence. I think... Uh, there's more influence than we realize in general. All the stories we tell are, input, are important and they form, form how we look at the world. And this, to me, particularly, is with, uh, the sort of old tales which have lasted a long time and they've lasted because they've got a, a lot of power in them. But we can change them. They don't have to be told in one way. They were told in one way. They weren't even told in one way in the uh, original tellings. If you look through and not not just look at uh, the Greek myths of Homer or uh, Sophocles, but you can look at other writers and find oh, a totally different way. And let's do that. Let's let's change stories. And if if we can change the stories properly, we can change behaviour. Yes. Yes, and I'm not sure enough people understand that, that it's myth that shapes our society. You know, if you have a male god, you end up with male leadership and male domination. And, you know, you've written yeah. um, some some lovely stories in your book, Labyrinth of the Heart, as, you know, as your bio says, you know, male heroes that don't follow stereotypical patterns. Is there a favorite of yours that you might like to share with listeners? Uh, let me think. Well, uh, I think my favourite would be 
the singer's lost love. Um, uh, can I tell, can I manage to tell it at the moment? This this is a version of a story of what what would you what would you like? Should I? Well, I was if, I, if you can maybe give a synopsis of it. You know, uh, how do you you know how do you um, redraw the man so that he you know becomes a better human being in the story than our typical uh, you know patriarchal yeah. man? Yeah. This is interesting because in the end. That particular story, he doesn't. But that, that's the critique of him. But he wasn't. He wasn't wise enough because this is a story. Orpheus, in the traditional telling, his wife Eurydice gets uh, gets killed, and he goes down into the underworld to try and recover her, and that does so. But he's told not to look back. And he looks back when he's uh, just like he's crossed into the upper world, and she's not. not now, what I saw him as, uh, as doing was not recognizing that the woman he had lost was the goddess. And when they're coming up from the underworld, she was the underworld goddess. And when he looked back, he wasn't seeing, oh, the pretty young girl he married. He was seeing the underworld goddess and he couldn't face it. And the moral and the finish of that story is a lack of wisdom. But he didn't he didn't see that you can have that you need light and shade and all mix. You can't have one. You can't have a life that's entirely joy. We hope we don't have a life that's entirely with pain, but joy and pain come together. That's and that's one of the secrets of life. Hmm. So um, let me ask you about that book, uh, Daniel, The Labyrinth of the Heart. Um, and thank you for sending me a copy. Uh, I really did enjoy it because, you know, I really do believe that, um, you know, as Matthew Fox and other folks over here talk about, you know, men need new archetypes. You know, yeah. um, and uh, you know, is is your book available? Because I don't know of anybody else. I mean, I'm sure, you know maybe they're out there, but I don't know of anybody else that's done what you've done with that with your yeah. book, Labyrinth of the Heart. Yeah, uh, it, yes, it was. Uh, it's available from Amazon. It's available from should be available from any bookshop uh, because if, uh, if you look on my website, you'll actually find its ISBN number. And it's a print-on-demand book, so should okay. be available, and certainly available from Amazon. Uh, the, one, the one thing to watch is that there are quite a few pe- uh, other people called Daniel Cohen. There's one who's written about uh, things about ghost stories and the, the like, so make sure that it's the right Daniel Cohen, which you okay. would do from All my right. website and elsewhere. Yep. Yeah, and I, I want to mention the website again. It's D-E-Cohen, D-E-C-O-H-E-N.com. You know, we've been talking a lot about the last, uh, in the last few months, uh, from different perspectives, of course, about how important it is to retell the stories. 
And, um, you know, and, and as you said, you know, the stories had been told so many different ways. Um, I, I, you know, I think sometimes we have to maybe, you know, actually uh, punctuate the fact that we, we should be able to give ourselves permission to retell the stories. You know, that they're not yeah. written in stone, that they're fluid and evolving and you know, we should we should write them in a way that benefits society, not continuing to perpetuate bad values. That's, that's exactly it. Women have been doing that for quite some time. And I felt, yeah, I love those stories, but where am I in them? And the answer is, of course, yeah, they weren't listening to me, so, so I had to write the stories myself. Well, <laughs> Um, I guess say, I mean, Nye was always right about the importance of myth, myth and story. Where he's wrong is in, it's in choice of stories and analysis of what they mean. But the fact that they're significant, he, he knew what he was about. And he is a good poet. I, I do like some of Nye's poems. Oh, he can be nasty. Okay. Um, now, you um, you had on uh, your list of talking points also uh, the goddess and the scholars. What did you want to uh, share? What thoughts did you have about that? Yes. But, uh, very much that there is some wonderful material written, written by modern scholars about uh, goddesses. But the, I think the scholars don't understand the goddess movement. They don't, un- they don't realize that the same person can say the goddess at one moment and goddesses at another. But we need, I like scholarship. And I think it's, anybody in the goddess movement really should be worth looking at the scholarly stuff. No, no not anybody should. But, uh, there is a lot that, you can, that we can find. Books like The Concept of the Goddess uh, and Ancient Goddesses have wonderful stuff about individual goddesses, and then rather a lot of nonsense about how the goddess moves, because they don't see they don't see this dance between the goddess goddesses. I'm I'm sure you do that same yourself. But sometimes it's easier to think of all the goddesses as aspects of one. Sometimes it's easier to think of them as completely different. It's true. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, from from day to day. You know, maybe we even change ourselves. You know, from going going from thinking of it as one monotheistic, if you will, you know, goddess that's one essence, to as a friend of mine says, you know, seeing the goddess as a diamond with different facets. And those yeah. different facets in the diamond are the different goddesses by all the different names we we call yeah. her. Yes, there's that nice that Joseph Campbell, uh, or call other Joseph Campbell, other called she of a thousand names. A, lovely, a nice phrase, she of a thousand names. She can be any of them, and all of them. Right. Right, right. So do you, um, you know, if I'm not getting too personal here, do you have a favorite goddess? Well, yeah, I was wondering about that, whether I wanted to answer. 
and for that. And the thing is, the two the two female uh, spiritual beings who that are not not quite goddesses, or rather one of them is, but it's very abstract. I fell once, once, I'm not very interested in Egypt, but I was remembering, uh, I just bought the last few minutes of the previous loss, that one. Was it at the Temple of Philae uh, when the, it said, uh, I am all that is and was and ever will be? God, uh, the goddess. And I have the feeling, yeah, that's the one, that's the one for me. But she's all if she's all that is, it's uncomfortable. Okay. So, so did you say? I, I'm sorry. Did you say Isis? Uh, I have. I can't remember whether it's Isis or uh, Neith. Is it Neith? Neith. Okay. Uh, I am all that is and was and ever will be. Right. All that is. All that is is going to mean the nasty stuff as well uh, as well as the good. You hear people say, "Oh, the goddesses and the jag- jaguar, the goddesses and the power of the volcano." But the goddesses, uh, in the smallpox virus, as far as I'm concerned, and you can't, uh, and you can't get out of that. So that's one of my goddesses. Okay. Really, really abstract. And the other one, I think it was Ellen Kushner uh, who said that all storytellers are in the service of the Queen of Elfland. And she, is she a goddess? I don't know, but she certainly one of my special uh, special beings, the one that I'm devoted to. And I haven't actually said that about it before. But I just okay. somehow felt it was the right time to do it. Well, um, you also, um, uh, you know, it, uh, while we're sort of on the subject of goddess and, and uh, scholars a bit, you wanted to uh, mention the work of uh, your your good friend Ash Fidel Long. Um, yes. You might want to start with telling listeners uh, the title of her book, uh, because unfortunately, you know, I never had the the, the honor of um, interviewing her, so uh, we haven't really talked about her ye- here before. Yeah. Well, she, she was one of the founders of the Goddess Movement in Great Britain, and certainly the principal scholar. Her main book is. Uh, called In a Chariot Drawn by Lyre, Search for Female in Deity. And it's just been made available by Goddess Inc. as a free uh, PDF, so not a hardcover book uh, and not actually an e-book, but at least a PDF that you can read. And it's particularly about wisdom in the, in the biblical tradition. Wisdom is, is a lot more than the female aspect. She's almost a goddess in her own right. And I've spelled other articles about, well, about about feminism, about the goddess. You can find her work on it's asphodellong.com. And that's A-S-P-H-O-D-E-L dash L-O-N-G. Yeah, 
I, I remember actually using her book um, as research when I wrote uh, Sacred Places of Goddess because, like you said, she sort of gets into the biblical goddess a bit and. Um, I believe it was I believe it was her who talked about uh, the menorah actually being a stylized tree, you know. And we always know that, you know, for a long time in the early days, you know, goddess was worshipped yeah. as a tree. And uh, you know, I, I totally looked at the menorah differently after uh, having read uh, her writing that. Oh, great! It's always good to know that when somebody is been an influence. Yes, that's, that's very important work. Called, I yeah. think that's called the uh, Asher, the Menorah, and the Tree of Life, I think. I think was the title. And it, it is on her website. I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, were, were you... Um you were good friends with her. I mean, you you were. Uh, did you you know work closely with her or? The best way, uh, Carol Chris uh, once asked me, me uh, "You're our self partner, aren't you?" And I said, uh, "Well, yes and no." And later on, yeah, I asked her what she. I asked her what she would have said, and, uh, and she said, "Well, yes and no," because we led independent lives. We didn't. Uh, we didn't live together. But we had a very close and fine uh, relationship for about 25 years or more, or with each of us influencing the other. And so, in some sense, it's a couple, in some sense, it's not. Yeah. Um, how long ago did did she pass away, Daniel? I don't I, I don't recall exactly. It's uh, nearly 11 years. It was February 2004. Ah, 2004. Um, well, she is. Uh, she's definitely missed, and she has, you know, uh, contributed so much. Um, and and again, the title of her of uh, one of her great books in the Chariot, uh, drawn by lions. I think, if, especially if you're interested in the biblical aspect of goddess, that's a great book. Um, so, Daniel, goddesses in fiction. Um, what did that was a topic you wanted to talk about a little yeah. bit? What did what did you want to say about that? Well, look look for them, and you will find them in all sorts of odd places. You'll find them in quite a bit of modern fantasy fiction. You'll find a bit in younger Anna uh, Paxson, for instance. I'm very fond of. I can't remember which one it it was, but she uh, she has the sea goddess as an octopus. Brilliant that image. I think the, uh, I think myself at Medusa, you know, the, that figure uh, from Greek myth with snakes for her hair. She was not actually somebody with snakes for hair, but was uh, a sea goddess with uh, as an octopus with the, the tentacles at the hair. But so Paxson, that uh, from all appears but uh, the young adult. But it's amazing. The first. The first places I found uh, the goddess were in uh, the works of uh, Victorian clergymen. Ah. Uh, George MacDonald, the princess and the goblin, when the princess goes up into the high tower and meets her great-grandmother, there is very, very clearly a goddess aspect. And even more so if you've read The Water Babies. That's 
the real edition of the Wasp Babies, not the at this at movie. He pretty much says this, that the characters. But uh, this is do as you would be done by, and this is done by as you did to the, uh, the teachers. And you can imagine what they were like from the names. And they could be treated as uh, virgin and crone if you go into that form. Mm-hmm. And at Tom's search for Mother Carey, who, who is found not creating the animals, but helping the animals to create themselves. In other words, mm. I believe that thing. But Kingsley uh, actually says that all those three and a few other of the female characters are aspects of uh, the one being. And I think you can find uh, other places. Places. The historical novelist Rosemary Sutcliffe uh, has a book, Mark of the Horse Lord, which is uh, where the uh, Essentially, the goddess appears. Uh, uh, by chance, Red Moon and Black Mountain, that has a lovely phrase in it. When a, a, young, a young man is this, uh, needs to sacrifice to the goddess, and uh, people are objecting, and one of them says, Oh, you, you men, you made such a make such a fuss about that one man having to be sacrificed and then you go away and kill so many thousands of people and not even the deity to justify it. That, in fact, no, the guy wasn't sacrificed because he realised that there was a need and he volunteered. There are more places if you look than you'd ever ever expect. Not going uh, to be very specific, Cretan or Greek and, and such, but just seeing who who are the special female characters and what what is their nature. Right, right, and and they might not always look like a goddess. Uh, you know, in they they might not sort of be couched in. Um, that term, but by nature of what they're doing and what they're saying, um, they are sort of, uh, you know, the essence of the goddess, I believe, is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, it was fiction with, I'm sorry, I'm just, just remembering too many books, but in which the, uh, the character who has mostly been seen as the waitress in the cafe, uh, suddenly absorbs the power of a nuclear bomb. Just takes it into into herself and uh, controls it. So that was another goddess. Anyway. Well, no, I hear what you're saying. You know, we really have to sort of expand our definition. And, uh, you know, we, we can't... W- Look for the goddess in, 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 by looking through a small lens. You know, we have to look a little bit bigger and broaden our, um, you know, our our sense of. Um, oh, I, I'm I, I'm not the word isn't coming to me, but uh, you know, sort of expand what you know we might identify uh, as goddess. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know, Hollywood here has been uh, doing a really good job of, um, I don't know whether it's intentional or by coincidence, but we've had such uh, good movies for uh, role models for girls. I mean, we've had Frozen, we've had Brave, we've had uh, Maleficent. Um, and, you know, as bad as Hollywood can be sometimes, um, I think they're, you know, in a sense they're starting to do a good job, uh, you know, to help girls rethink, um, you know, who they are and what they can be. I mean, like with the Hunger Games, you know, that they've brought to the screen. Um, yeah. uh, you, you know, so I, I think, you know, feminism and, uh, you know, female empowerment seem to be, uh, you seem to really be on the agenda, you know, thank God us. <laughs> yeah, I hope it will continue that way. I'm, well, I, I hope I miss, so too. I want to see them. And the Hunger Games I read, but in the, yeah, not seen the movie, but yeah, I like it. It's a good book. Um, well, well, Daniel, we're getting pretty close to the end of the show here, so we're going to have to sort of wrap it up. Um, so, is you know, um, is there anything you'd like to close with that I haven't asked you about yet? Uh, yeah, I just want. To, I was wondering because I put ritual as one of the things, just to remind people that ritual is about connection. It's, it's not just about working for yourself it's connection with other people with the land or simply of cycles of the year and if at a really good ritual you should know that you are connected with something outside yourself very good point very good point and something that i that uh, I think we forget sometimes, you know, I, I, and, you know, I don't mean to be negative here, but I think so often times people go to ritual really to just be entertained uh, rather yeah. than, you know, going to ritual to really make that connection, as you're saying, you know, and um, I, I, I think that's a very valid point worth, uh, you know, worth punctuating, um, you know, about the importance of ritual. It can do so much for us and do so much for the community and, um, you know, help us expand who we are. Yeah. Well, Daniel, um, thank you uh, so very much for taking the time, uh, you know, for being on the show. And, you know, thank you for, you know, the body of work you have uh, done in the world to uh, you know, help make it a better place. And I hope my listeners will most definitely go look for your wonderful book, uh, Labyrinth of the Heart. And, you know, thank you again for gifting me with a copy. Uh, it's it's something that I really will use and uh, and share with other people. I just want you to know that. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on the program. Well, it's, really it's been well, it's been my honor to have you on the show. I mean, I really respect what you've done in the world, and um, you know, it, it's it really, um, it, you know, it, it's my honor to have you. And I hope you'll have a wonderful uh, trip here in the United States and uh, safe travels back home. And uh, you know, please do keep in touch. Let me hear from you now and again. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Okay. Good night. Good night. Well, listeners, um, I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing from Daniel, all his wise 
uh, wise words of wisdom that uh, we can certainly partake of and, um, you know, really take to heart, you know, really learn from him. So um, let's see. I wanted to share another quote from uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, This is from the new anthology that just came out in November. It goes like this. Most of us have come to realize patriarchy, ruled by a male-dominated society, revealing solely a male god, is not working for Mother Earth or for most of the people on the planet. How do we counter beliefs that there is no option but the authoritarian father? How does society go about making a course correction? How do ideas that permeate every level of society from womb to tomb boardroom to bedroom, voting booth to the workplace, shift into a more fair, equal, and just world of partnership, sharing, caring, and peace, unquote. Well, if you pick up Voices of the Sacred Feminine, uh, you will hear uh, the, uh, well, you will read uh, the contributions of the wonderful contributors to the anthology who have been on this radio show. And uh, oftentimes uh, in the anthology, they have continued the conversation we started in the book and um, have, uh, you know, taken our conversation to the next step or maybe given an update. Um, So you might want to read the book in conjunction with uh, searching the archives uh, to hear, you know, the voices from these, um, you know, these wonderful way showers. Uh, and foremothers, you know, women, women and men. So uh, we are about to um, come to a close tonight, and I hope you've enjoyed the show, and um, I hope you will be with me again tomorrow as Roy and I bring you our goddesses of the winter season and legends and lore of uh, of Christmas uh, for our holiday show. And uh, in closing tonight, um, I wanted to play for you uh, a, a, a holiday song by Jan Aldrich Clanton called uh, Holy Darkness. So uh, until tomorrow, enjoy. I'll see you then. with
Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.